You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message by John Mark McMillan. Amen. Hey. How are you doing? Good, good. Awesome. Um, we are beginning a series on John's Gospel this week. And um, I'm excited because John's is one of my favorites. John's is one of my favorites. All right. Raise your hand if you... John's. You like... You're into, yeah. Hey, there are passages of Scripture that I don't like. So it's okay to have favorites. <laughs> so definitely some that aren't my favorites. They're all important, right? But John has a lot of my favorites. Um, technically, I did a little research on the Gospel of John uh, this week. And technically, did you know, John's Gospel was written anonymously and only refers to the author as the disciple who Jesus loved. And we're pretty sure it was John because the writing style is very similar to John's three epistles, which we know were written by um, the disciple John. But I think, to me... Uh, there's a lot we could say about um, uh, the gospel of John, but I kind of think that this idea, the idea that he would only write it, uh, only identify himself as the disciple who Jesus loved, uh, gives us, uh, it might give us all the context we need to jump in to the gospel of John. So with that in mind, let's jump in. Um, If you would, let's stand up and read something together. Um, okay. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything that was made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. All right, thanks, guys. You can sit down. Oh, man. This is my favorite passage in the entire Bible. Like, this could be the whole Bible for me right here. A lot of people didn't have the Bible, so one passage is a lot. Throughout history, most people were really lucky. Throughout history, most people didn't have the Bible. Most people couldn't read. And so they got what they could by the things they heard and the rituals they had built into their lives. But we get it. I could totally live off of this. I mean, luckily, I get a lot more than this. But if this is all I had, I would be. (laughs) Maybe I'd be all right. I love it. But first of all, I want to say I'm not capable to fully unpack these five scriptures in 45 minutes. Secondly, I'm probably not capable to fully unpack these scriptures in 45 years. But this has got to be one of the most beautiful, significant, mysterious, and compelling passages in all Scripture. Not to mention probably one of the most famous uh, openings to any work of literature in the history of mankind, right? But first off, let's say this. While John is using some poetic device here, he is not doing it for mere ornamentation. He's not just trying to sound deep. 
there's a massive amount of purpose and meaning behind his execution of this passage. He's not just like, in the beginning, that was the word. Right? That, that would be fine, though. Reveling in the, you know, it's great. But, but there's a lot more happening here. It's not just something that feels great to say. That would probably be fine, though, even if it did just feel great to say. But it's not just something that feels great to say. I want to break down a couple things, observations that I have had. And there's probably a lot of different ways you could come at this. And there's probably um, a lot you could say. And I'm just going to pick apart my personal observations. Uh, In the time that I have, number one, notice how his language mirrors the creation passages from Genesis 1. But this is Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. The darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Do you see how John is literally mirroring Genesis 1? Five verses for five verses. This is in, uh, I believe this is called an illusion, not an illusion, an illusion when you allude to something. He is alluding to Genesis 1 for a very specific reason. By simply mimicking the language of the creation passages, he makes a profound statement. It's as if he's saying, be prepared for everything. Be prepared for everything you thought you knew about this world and God to change. Because he's writing to a Jewish audience and every good Jew knows this chapter. They heard it read every single year at the same time every year, I would imagine, right? And so by him opening up this way, everyone knew exactly what he was saying because they all knew what he was trying to do. They all knew he was mimicking, mirroring Genesis 1. As significant as the very creation. As significant as the very creation of the universe was, so speaks the life and person of Jesus. John is hailing a new Genesis. And before I said that, I looked up and read some important people, and they agree. <laughs> N.T. Wright agrees with me here. So do uh, other theologians who have passed away. Um, whenever you're in doubt, quote the dead theologians, and you're okay. Because <laughs> you can't argue with a dead smart person, right? John is hailing a new Genesis, right? Because, for one... For starters, anyway, Jesus is a whole new way to see God. So much so that John, a few verses later, would imply that Moses' face-to-face experience was almost like not seeing God at all. John says that Moses' experience was a low-resolution experience of God. Okay? This is still in the first chapter, by the way. Let me jump down here. 
And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. Okay. One breath. All right? Everybody knew, everyone he was writing to knew this, that Moses received the law face to face with God. So John is saying here, the law was given through Moses, and in your mind, what he's saying, what he's not saying, and that everyone knows, is this, for the law was given to Moses, all right, face to face with God, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Still, I added the word still, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he's made known to him, to made him known. <laughs> Sorry, I'm tripping on my words here. So here, he's saying that even the law, right? Even the most important things, Moses, who saw God face to face and saw the glory of the Lord, right? Even Moses didn't really see God. Even Moses' experience with God was a low-resolution experience compared to our experience with the life and person of Jesus, right? You know, when Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law, what he was saying is not something that hadn't been said before. There was a lot of context to that. To fulfill the law meant, you got to understand, there's the words of the law, right? And then there's what it mean, the intent of the law and what it means to live, not just by the words, but by the intent of the law. And when Jesus was saying, the, what the law is trying to do, look at me. I'm going to fulfill the law. I'm going to put feet and legs and flesh around the law. I'm going to show you what the law is trying to do. Look at me. It's not doing away with the law, but he's saying the law is low, a low-resolution understanding of God. The writer of Hebrews agrees and mirrors John, and he even takes it a step further. Hebrews 1 Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, the prophets, but in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You think the writer of Hebrews and the writer of John knew each other? I think so. They're both anonymous, <laughs> right? But another translation of this, same, of this same passage from Hebrews calls Jesus the express image of God. Some, some, some have said when God shines, he looks like Jesus. You could even say that God is Christ-like. Okay, so this was revolutionary because until Jesus... The gods were to be appeased at a cost, right? Understand even the Old Testament. Much of the time, people, the people of God were polytheists, and it took them a long time to sort out the difference between Jehovah and all the other gods. They had all kind of gods, and here's Jehovah is speaking, and they're like, well, which one are you? And you see, um, you know, <laughs> Abraham struggling. He feels like, God's called him to sacrifice his son because that would be a thing that the gods would do. And so God says, will you sacrifice your son? He's like, well, yeah, because this is what we do. We sacrifice for the gods. He takes his son, goes to sacrifice his son, and God says, stop. 
I'm going to provide for this sacrifice because I'm trying to differentiate myself between who I am and all the other gods that you have grown accustomed to, right? I'm going to differentiate myself. And this is much of what's happening in the Old Testament leading up to Jesus is God, Jehovah, differentiating himself from all the other gods. It's easy for us. We have the advantage of history, right? But if you were in the middle of it, it could be complicated, complex, and difficult, right? Not that it's not still somewhat complex. But these gods required sacrifices. If things were not going well, you sacrificed to the gods, and they sometimes paid attention to you. All of life was very much about appeasing the gods. But then all of a sudden, here's a God who sacrifices for you. It was unheard of. Now, there are stories of a Norse god who died on a tree. I looked it up on the Internet. I had a hard time finding much information about it. But for the most part, you don't see this. You don't see this prior to Jesus. Okay? This is not only revolutionary for us as believers, but the idea alone is a historical shift in the psychology and thought of mankind. Okay? All the other gods needed animal blood and firstborn sons and burned vegetables, bread offerings, gold, and poured out wine. But this God, he poured out his own wine, he cast the money on the floor, he served the bread himself, and he gave his own firstborn. All of a sudden, God was not angry. God was not petty. God was not jealous. God did not ridicule or scorn. Nope. In Jesus, we recoil all the way back to the dawn of time and see that the nature of God has always been defined by self-sacrificial love. As John or another disciple by the name of John, exhorts us in his first epistle, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And there's a period at the end of that sentence. I like to make it a comma. God is love. As long as you love like we love and the people we love. No. <laughs> Boom. It's a period at the end of that sentence. Excuse me. I told you this is my favorite. All right, so let's back up a little bit and unpack a couple other observations. The concept of what we call a word is very interesting to me and very significant in my opinion. As a songwriter, I think about words a lot. What even is a word? When's the last time you thought about what a word even is? You know, we form sounds with our mouths and we scratch symbols on a page. And if you understand what's happening... Um, with the culture and context, you can kind of understand what's happening with the person on the other end of these things. Have you ever thought about how weird a word is? You know, there's some other interesting things to talk about. Is one word means different things to different people. You have to kind of have a context. Is word and language is not science. It's much more of an art. Art means you have to have some context. Is one plus one always equals two. Like, always. But there are certain words that you could say in different cultures. I travel a lot. There's certain countries where it's okay to say some words where they mean totally different things in other countries, right? Because a word is not a static thing, right? A word requires context. 
There's a lot we can say about a word. Here's my definition of a word. It's the articulation of an inward feeling, thought, or idea. It's the attempt to be heard, known, or understood. It's an attempt to express the inner life into the outer world. But is the word simply the sound we make or the character we scratch on the page? The ancients associated the word with reason and even the consciousness. Somehow that's actually connected to the soul or spirit, right? Have you ever had a word on the tip of your tongue? You know the meaning, but you just can't find the right way to say it. But just because you can't recall the word, doesn't it all mean that there's no meaning? The meaning is there. The word may not be in your mouth, but it's certainly in your heart. We all know that the meaning is something much deeper and much more real than the simple sounds we make with our mouths or the characters on a page. The articulations are only ever the sheen on the surface of real meaning. And this is a side note. But that's something I battle with writing songs in and out of church. As people always want to attack the surface. They always want to attack the sheen and they argue over what the words mean. In my opinion, they miss the point that the meaning is something much deeper. And there's been a lot of argument. This is totally irrelevant. <laughs> there's been a lot of argument about sort of emotionalism versus correct theology. But I kind of feel like if you don't have the emotion, then theology doesn't matter. I don't mean the actual theology, but I mean the sheen, the words. We argue over the words. But the words don't mean anything to me if they're not connected to something much deeper than sort of the sheen articulation, right? So you really can't have one without the other. It's just not possible. Because we're not talking about the sheen. We're talking about something that reaches deep down into the heart of a person, which is usually, it was always much deeper than something you can just articulate with your mouth, right? But it's something we can tap into. Does that make sense? It doesn't matter. It's my pet. That's my pet argument for the... For the day. Right. But the articulations are only ever the sheen on the surface of real meaning. So here when John says that the word was with God and the word was God, he's obviously talking about something deeper than simple pronouncements, something deeper than simple information. Now, if it's okay with you guys, I want to use a simpler term for this. Instead of calling this word the pre-articulated meaning of God... I think it wouldn't be completely inappropriate to simply call it the dream of God. I think we'd all agree that the most significant term in English language for unarticulated meaning is a thing most of us would call a dream. In the beginning was the unarticulated dream of God, and the dream was with God, and the dream was part of God himself. And all the things that exist flow from this dream. This is John 1, 1 through 3, the J-M-M-S-V. So God, slowly, over so many years, begins to manifest his dream until finally we come to his pinnacle or the most perfect distillation in the person of Jesus. Jesus was the word made flesh. Jesus put a body around the dream of God. Jesus put a body around the dream of God. 
So what then does it mean if Jesus is the word, the meaning and articulation of the dream, thought and intent of the maker God? It means, as I said earlier, that Jesus was the clearest window through which we can study and understand the essence of our creator. And as I also said earlier, this must mean that that essence should be defined by self-sacrificial love, because that is the story arc and the most and the and the greatest defining characteristic of Christ. Right. When anyone in the world thinks about Jesus, they think about what you see when you walk into most traditional churches, you see a cross. Some of them you'll see an actual body on the wall with that cross. That's the, most, that's the defining char- characteristic of Christ, and that's the defining characteristic of our Creator, if Christ is the window through which we best understand the essence of our Creator. But it's not the end of it, because Jesus is not just our window into the person of God. He's also our window into what it means to be the model human, right? Here's what N.T. Wright says. It says, part of the whole point of John's gospel is that when the word made flesh accomplishes his work of glory, love, and passion, he pours out his own spirit on his followers so that they too can become words, become flesh. This too is stressed in the prologue, which is what we read this morning together. As many as received him to them, he gave the right to become God's children, born not in the normal way, but with a new birth from God. To me, this means that we have been called into the same dream. We also have been invited to put a body around the dream of God. We are the body of Christ. So now what? So now what? So at this point, you might begin to think, this is all fine and pretty to say, but what in the world do I do with any of this? I understand because I, I spend a lot of time in this first world because it's exciting. And I'm trying more and more to, you know, dig into this third act here, right? Which is the what do I actually do with any of this, right? Well, most of the time you've got to admit we're not flowing from the dream of God, though we're living from a dream all the same. We're all living from an unseen place. Our strings are being pulled But if you're not pulling those strings, I guarantee someone else is. I guarantee someone else is. I want to read this. There's different places throughout this I could read. I think this is an appropriate place to read this piece of a blog a friend of mine sent a long time ago. It's called What You Can't Say is the name of the blog, and it's a whole lot longer than what I'm going to read to you. But I loved this portion. Do you have any opinions that you would be reluctant to express in front of a group of your peers? If the answer is no, you might want to stop and think about that. If everything you believe is something you're supposed to believe, could that possibly be a coincidence? Odds are it isn't. Odds are you just think what you're told. The other alternative would be that you independently considered every question and came up with the exact same answers that are now considered acceptable. That seems unlikely. Because you'd also have to make the same mistakes. Map makers deliberately put slight mistakes in their maps so they can tell when someone copies them. If another map has the same mistake, that's very convincing evidence. Like every other era in history, our moral map almost certainly contains a few mistakes. And anyone who makes the same mistakes probably didn't do it by accident. 
It would be like someone claiming they had independently decided in 1972 bell-bottom jeans were a good idea. If you, if you believe everything you're supposed to now, how can you be sure you wouldn't also have believed everything you were supposed to if you'd grown up among the plantation owners of the pre-Civil War South or in Germany in the 1930s or among the Mongols in 1200 for that matter? Odds are you would have. That's tough. That's tough. But here's the reality. If you're not pulling the strings, someone else is definitely pulling the strings. Like who you are, you are not an island. And what happens in your heart is not, doesn't happen in a vacuum. Right? But I think your maker is inviting you to partner with him in your life. And this begins with your inner life. Because I believe you become the dream that you live from. I believe you become the dream that you live from. And if you don't know the dream that you're living from, then my friend here who wrote the blog may, may be talking about people like me and you. He may be talking to us. That's heavy. I'm going to get a little heavier. So this broke my heart this week. In the news I read about a Dutch girl, she was 17 years old and decided that because of the abuse that she'd suffered, life was now too painful. And so the news said that she was legally euthanized. It turns out this wasn't entirely true. She was actually denied the request to be euthanized, so she stopped eating and drinking and she starved herself to death. First of all, I'm obviously not prescribing a quick and easy fix, right? I wouldn't want to belittle her pain or the pain of anyone who's ever been abused, but I have to believe that over time she could have healed and found a way to live from a different place. But because of the abuse, her dream became a dark one that told her she was worthless. She said she began to hate her body and see herself as worthless. So she made flesh of that word. She will never be worthless. I have to believe that all people have value in the eyes of God. But she now ceases to exist on this plane because of the painful dream she lived from. In a sense, her dream became a heartbreaking manifestation of her inward reality. She saw herself as nothing, and she put flesh around that word. And now, I don't believe she's nothing. But she's not here on this planet with us anymore because of her dream. You become the dream that you live from. You become the words that you make flesh. So my question to you today is this. What dream are you living from? What is your word? Are you living from the dream of God? What is the pre-articulated reality of your life? What is the word that you keep in your heart? Let me give you something to consider. Christianity isn't a club as much as it's a practice. However, the club sometimes helps with the practice, and community is very much the focus of the practice. But generally speaking, Christianity isn't a club, it isn't a tribe, right? 
It's something you, it's a practice. It's something you do. This is literally what it means to be a disciple. Discipline is the root word of disciple. To be a disciple of Christ means to grow in the spiritual disciplines of Jesus, our mentor, and our model. That simply means to practice. This isn't one you practice to become worthy. It's one you practice when you realize that you are worthy by the gift of God. So consider your spiritual practice. How much time do you spend in silence considering your dream and the words that define you versus the time you spend allowing other more coercive voices to speak into your inner world? Technology is fine, but you have to understand that it's coercive. Your environment is coercive. If you're not moving, it's moving you. And I'm not anti-technology, it's the world we live in, but it just means that we need to be vigilant in taking the time to find silence, rest, and peace in our lives. Prayer is of imminent importance. We need to take time to determine the words that we've decided will form us. We need to pursue the dream of the maker. Otherwise, we'll be formed by something else. And chances are they won't have your best interests in mind. You become the dream that you live from. I love later in, in the book of John, Jesus' dissertation in chapter 15. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in them, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. That's really hard, and it comes across a little more intense than it is. But it's just saying this. If you cut off your arm, your arm is going to wither and die. If you abide in me and my words, once again, words. You see the word words and abide a lot. In this passage, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. There's abide again. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. His joy flows from what Jesus says is abiding. And he uses all sorts of things like abide in the vine. He's like, I'm like the vine. I'm like the plant. If you take a piece of the plant away from the trunk of the plant, it doesn't get the things it needs to thrive. It's like if you separate yourself from the creation dream, the creating dream, the dream of God, the dream of life, if you separate yourself from that dream, you will be cursed to live in your own dark dreams. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or the dreams of whatever it is you connect to, which likely is not, <laughs> doesn't have your best interest in mind. But the dream of Jesus, he says here, is that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. So that's another question. What does it mean to abide? And how are your spiritual disciplines around abiding? To abide means to live. In the English language, there's an element of uh, 
Obedience connected to that word, right? How do we abide? Prayer, meditation, contemplation, or as we say often in the charismatic tradition, spending time with God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all meditated and prayed. Jesus meditated and prayed. We should probably spend time in silence with the Lord, allowing him to speak into our world on a regular basis. But I'll be the first to say, I don't do that very often. Because my phone is exciting. But it's not just millennials and phones. We had TV long before. Me and my wife have a thing. We judge a restaurant based on a number of um, factors. One of them is how few TVs they have. If a restaurant has zero TVs, they're automatically like top notch. You can have one TV at the bar. You got to watch important games. You know what I mean? But other than that, no screens. And the places where you actually order from an iPad, like at the airport, like, just kill me. (sighs) Also because they add the tip and no one actually brings you your food. So you're tipping the iPad, which is ridiculous. (laughs) It's not working very hard. So we've had distractions long before the distraction lived in your pocket. I think the temptation is a little more real today because it does live in your pocket. But the goal isn't to get the temptation out of your pocket. The goal is to get yourself in a place of peace and rest on a regular basis where you can connect with the Lord outside of the coercion of the news, of your friends, of Tetris of Facebook, of Pokemon, of Fortnite, all the things we love. Whatever your distraction is, right? The goal isn't just to get away from the distraction. The goal is to get into a place where you can connect to the dream of God for you. At this moment, I'm going to ask Mr. Matt Minton to come up. If you would, close your eyes. Together we're going to practice a non-coercive moment. Maybe it's a little coercive because Matt's good on the piano. Everything I say is going to sound more important when he's playing, but... (laughs) But yeah, close your eyes. and um, There's something that happens when you raise your hands. There's something that... um, There's been studies about things that happen when you raise your hands. Sometimes before a big game or a show, people will raise their hands and signal something in your brain. So if it helps, raise your hands. I'm going to ask you some questions. I want you to try really 
carefully to answer these questions honestly in your heart, okay? But I want you to answer them from a good place. Let's connect to the dream of God. And let's let the dream answer these questions. But I just want you to be honest, okay? What are your words? What are your words? When you think about yourself... When you think about God, when you think about the people around you, what are the words that come to mind? Not the words that are supposed to. What are the the words that actually come to mind when you think about your world? Okay? No shame here, but if these words are negative, this is what's defining your inner world, and the Lord wants to prune those words out of you. And look, I'm not preaching a message of denial. You're not just going to, like, change your your language and win a billion dollars and raise all the people from the dead that you lost. But the dead in your heart and your outer world is going to change if you begin to let Christ define, excuse me, be the word and define the adjectives that you use to describe your world, which mostly consists of the way you think of yourself, the people around you, and God And eventually, if you can belt up in your spiritual discipline, you can extend that to the people you don't like very much. Maybe even the people that you have started to hate. You kind of got to be a black belt at spiritual discipline to love the people that you hate. But that's where we're headed. So start with you. Because I've realized most people hate other people. Because really, they're vicariously hating themselves through those other people. Okay? So let's start with you. What are the words that you use to define you? If that's too complicated, then answer this. Why are you here on earth? Not why are you here at church, but why are you here on earth? God obviously has a plan for you if you're still breathing. Because there's a lot of people who aren't still breathing. Why are you here breathing? When I say that, what are the words that come to mind? If you have no words, then man, let's repent. Let's get some good words for that. There's some joy in there. What are you doing? What speaks to you in the silence? When you're bored, what are the thoughts that come to you? Is it the invitation of God or is it the invitation of something else? What is the place that you're living from? Can you articulate any of this? Have you ever outlined the core values that you intend to live from? What words do you use when you think about what you do? And you know, if you're struggling, like I know we all do, the human experience is very similar and we're all connected. We're all connected to Christ. So it's actually really okay and appropriate to borrow language from other human beings. And so if you're not sure about the words you're supposed to use, because sometimes things get so dark and so difficult and so painful that you run out of those words. But that's what's beautiful about the community and the tradition is that there are other words, 
I like to borrow these words from Paul and I can take them and use them all my own. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will we also with him graciously, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? going to bring a charge against yourself well it's God who justifies so back off treat yourself better who was to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised who was at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? See, Paul is not a denier. He knows all these things exist. But he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angel, angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, so you can borrow and own words. I really believe it's important to learn how to identify yourself as John identified himself as disciple whom Jesus loved, I think it's time to stop identifying ourselves as broken, wicked, or overly flawed. Uh, here's a couple statements people make, and they do sometimes pull them from the Bible, but I believe somewhat out of context. This is one that I particularly hate. The only thing good in me is Christ. All right? I understand those words are true, but that's not what they mean. Because that's like saying, all I have in the bank is a billion dollars. Guys, Christ is the only thing good in me. If you mean you're not that good, that's a dumb thing to say. All I have in the bank is a billion dollars. I'd be totally broke if it weren't for the bank that I have that has a billion dollars in it. I'm just poor, guys. I'm just a poor man with a billion dollars in the bank. I'm just a wretch with Christ in me. Right? I realize it's semantic. I'm not saying these words are right or wrong. What I'm saying is, it's the way you approach these words. If you use these words to condemn yourself, then you are using them the wrong way. You're not a sinner saved by grace. You're an object of grace who makes mistakes. I realize it's semantics because you are also a sinner. But there's a difference in being something and struggling with something. There's a difference in wickedness and weakness, right? I think most of us are just a little weak. 
not a sinner saved by grace. I'm an object of grace who makes mistakes. Some people are going to hate that because they really like to down shame themselves. But I just don't think that shame or fear has ever produced the righteousness of God. Are you going to hate yourself into righteousness? Did anger ever produce love or compassion? Do you need to ask yourself for forgiveness for the way you've treated the disciple who Jesus loves? Do you need to ask yourself forgiveness for the way you've treated the disciple Jesus loved? When you see yourself as good, loved, and worthy, the way the maker sees you, then I've got to believe that this is the seedbed for righteousness and goodness to manifest in a healthy way. God said it was good first. You know, original sin is not, those words are not in the Bible. I know what people are talking about when they say original sin. But what is in the Bible is God creating things and saying it was good. And I get it, people do terrible things, right? We have a proclivity. We have two proclivities, actually. We actually have a proclivity towards righteousness as well. Right? Your momentum does not have to be a momentum of death and destruction. You can have a different momentum. God said it was good first. God said you were good first. said there was something wrong with you? Who said that you were naked? Why are you hiding, Adam? Who said there was something wrong with you and that you're not right? Who said that there was something missing deep down inside your life? Who said you needed something that you didn't have? Like you were fractured and separated your head, your heart was bad. Who told you that? Maybe you better answer those questions. Because if you don't answer those questions, somebody's going to answer those questions for you. And they may not have your best interests in mind. Love you guys. Thank you. <laughs> I think I'm done. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.